Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 34. Again, that's Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 34. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you and open it to page 775. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Great to be here with you guys worshiping together. Uh, Before I start, I just want to remind us that uh, there is a... um, baptism class, so if you are interested in getting baptized, or if you have an infant that you'd like to baptize next Sunday, please uh, uh, join with us here with Pastor Eugene. And also, I want to just remind all of us to join us at 5.30 today as we celebrate um, the installation of our um, deacon-elects, so please join us. Um, Join me as we continue to worship, as we pray. Lord God, would you open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, especially during this season of Advent, that as the scripture so read, and now as your word is proclaimed, that we may hear with joy what you say to us today, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Last week, we had the opportunity to hear a sermon from Pastor Eugene about the parable of the landowner, and how... Um, the parable itself served as, a, as an answer, as an illustration to verse 30 of chapter 19. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And we, 
we learn what the principle of his kingdom, this last, first, first, last, was about. And that because we have a God who is just, who is gracious, who is sovereign and good, he does this leveling work in the way, uh, in regards to salvation. Um, the parable taught us that God doesn't reward us with eternal life according to our human earthly measure or effort, but because through his just, gracious, sovereign, good character. And it's important that we serve in the kingdom, not with this desire to want more honor, more recognition, but with humility, because we trust in this God who is um, just, who is gracious, who is indeed sovereign and good. If you think about the predictions that Jesus has given in the Gospels, as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, this is the third time that Jesus spoke of his prediction of death and resurrection. Back in chapter 16, he mentioned it to the disciples, and again in chapter 20, excuse me, 17, verse 22, 23, for the second time, he told his disciples about what was going to happen to him, that he was going to die and he was going to rise again. And now with the third prediction, he gives with far more details than he had done earlier. Now, we know that the death and resurrection is at the crux of the gospel. We come back to it every Sunday, and we wouldn't have the hope that we have um, if it wasn't for the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. And the suffering that Jesus bore was not an accident. And it was something that Jesus knew he had to do. It was probably, not probably, it was the first uttered word that Jesus spoke um, as, a, as a child that we remember, I must be about my father's business when his parents found him at the temple talking with um, the, the teachers there. And the last word that we remember of Jesus uttering as he is dying, it is finished. We know that he knew what he came to do. Now the disciples, however, they're so focused on hearing about the glory of the kingdom, glory of the Messiah, that they fail to hear and receive and understand the suffering Messiah that Jesus spoke again and again and again. Now, in the passage that we just read here, in verse 17, it, it reads, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And he begins to tell them with greater detail about what he is going to go through. That he will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, that they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And will be raised on the third day. Now Jesus was traveling with a large entourage Besides his group of disciples, because it was a time of the year when they're going to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover, people were still traveling. So now they were joining Jesus and the disciples on this journey. And instead of saying this to the entire crowd, to the disciples in front of the crowd, Jesus took them aside because the news that he's going to say, now we've been used to hearing about this, so it doesn't hit us with the same kind of impact. But what Jesus is going to tell them is going to come with great force, and it's going to disturb them. If you look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 32, it says, Disciples, when they heard, they were both amazed and they were afraid. They knew the hostility 
that the city of Jerusalem was waiting for them. They knew the people, like the chief priests and the scribes, and especially the Pharisees, because they had the encounters, they knew the trouble, and they knew a lot of harm, if not possible, death could await their Lord. Why would he want to go there? But you see, this was the plan. He had to go to Jerusalem. This wasn't an accident. It was foretold by prophets long ago. And if you read through Psalm 22 or um, Isaiah 53 or the Zechariah's prophecy, just to list a few, we know that the detail of Jesus' death and the cross is something that he had to go through. The the, The death of Jesus Christ is the primary event in history and the primary event in the Bible. Um, And it's what the entire scripture has been weaved through. This is what he came to do. In verse 18 through 19, Jesus begins to predict his suffering with greater detail. He is able to tell the disciples about the betrayal that he's going to experience. He hasn't said this yet. That he's going to be handed over to chief priests and scribes. That he's going to be condemned to death, he's going to be handed over to pagans, and that he's going to be mocked, and eventually he's going to be crucified. J.C. Ryle says this, he saw, meaning Jesus, Jesus saw Calvary from a distance all his life. He knew this is what he came for, and he continues by saying, and he chose it for his disciples, and he is reminding them of it here. Imagine playing this over and over again knowing that this is the very purpose of his coming. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because he came for this. His prediction about his suffering, his crucifixion especially, this is the first time Jesus actually mentions how he's going to die. In the previous two predictions, he tells them that he's going to be killed, but he doesn't say how. Now, he did talk about the cross twice before, but they're both metaphorical in a sense that take up the cross and follow me. He hasn't told them that he's going to die through a cross. The most humiliating death that you can imagine at this time. So imagine being the disciples taking a side and Jesus telling them, look, we're going to go there and they're going to be, you know, I'm going to be handed over I'm going to experience all these kind of humiliating things, and I'm going to be crucified. They are going to be disturbed with absolute horror. But with the cross, there is glory. The resurrection comes after the cross. And it testifies to Jesus' deity um, that he's righteous, that he had no sin in him, and death could not keep him um, Longer than those days that he mentioned. The resurrection of Jesus is an absolute essential for our salvation. His resurrection from the dead to newness of life is a resurrection that we will experience first in regeneration in the last day in glorification. John Calvin um, was called to the city of Geneva by William uh, Farrell, and after serving and ministering in Geneva for three years, he experienced a lot of opposition to the reform that he was trying to institute there. And essentially, he was kind of kicked out of the town. 
Um, now, um, city of Geneva, they spoke French, but, and, and John Calvin was a Frenchman, but while Geneva spoke French, it, it wasn't a French town. They were Swiss. And his reforms were so unpopular, he, people were discouraged, and they were getting upset with what John Calvin was trying to do. And they didn't like him so much that eventually people used to name the children after John Calvin. And, you know, they, excuse me, they used to name their dogs after Calvin and call their dogs, kick them. Now, I named my son Calvin not knowing that they did this. And obviously, I, I, I view Calvin a lot more highly than the, the people of Geneva before they were um, redeemed in, in the spirit here. Um, they didn't like what um, John Calvin was doing, that eventually people started naming their children after obscene names to make a mockery of the baptisms, the infant baptism. So the ministers who were doing would have to call these obscene names of the children that they were baptizing to kind of say, we do not support what you're doing in this town. It, it was so bad. Um, and eventually they, they ran him out. And he went to a city called Strasbourg and served as a minister in a French Protestant congregation. And he loved it. It was the happiest years of ministry. Um, he was able to study. He was able to write. He was accepted. He was taken care of. And he found a wife there. And even though he was really enjoying the ministry there, one day he received a letter from Geneva asking him, Calvin, we beg you, come back. Why would anyone in their right mind come back to such a place that kicked him out? Later on, Calvin tells in a letter to one of his friends um, that it was the last thing he wanted to do, to go back. Because he had been miserable there. But this is what um, he said, I am not my own. I belong to God. I must live for him and die for him. And if he is calling me back to Geneva, then there I must go. And he spent the rest of his life in Geneva among working and serving among a people who really never fully appreciated him. And even though he served there a long, long time, he wasn't even given the citizenship till much later, maybe three or four years before he died. Um, but his faithfulness reminds us what self-denial looks like. Even if we're not in ministry as Christians, what does self-denial look like? We get a glimpse as we look at servants like John Calvin, who's looking at Jesus Christ. Now, you, you are wondering, the disciples are hearing these predictions, the, the specific details, now with, uh, on the third time, and, you know, did they come back to Jesus like sometimes they had done before when they didn't understand a parable? Did they come asking, hey, Jesus, what do you mean by suffering? What do you mean that you're going to be crucified? What do you mean you're going to be handed over to these people? Like, can you explain? Is that what they did? No. Instead, they, um, two of them came with a mother. Um, back in Roman Empire, pride was exalted as a virtue, and humility was looked down upon as a weakness. Um, you wouldn't want to be described as a humble person back in this time. Um, 
but now we, we live in a day where self-glory, self-esteem, self-promotion, and pride is something to be encouraged. Um, and we might think, I'm proud of myself in this, I'm proud to be this, I deserve more than what I'm getting, kind of the language that we heard some of the laborers who worked more, right? This self-promotion, this self-esteem movement has also infiltrated um, the Christian church. And people are now twisting the Bible to promote pride, self-esteem, self-image, self-glory, more than what Jesus is teaching in the scriptures. There are some people who think that God's only design for us is to be healthy, wealthy, prosperous, happy, satisfied, fulfilled, and stay away from what it means to be humble, what it means to live a sacrificial life. Now, there was a time in the church, time of Reformation and time of the Puritans, when dominant sense of brokenness and humility was taught and people received it and responded. And here, the disciples weren't too different than the, the culture we live in today. They were into self-promotion. They sought the high places. Now, the disciples, more or less, um, forsook all and followed Jesus. And there is a decent level of genuineness in their discipleship, following the Lord. Um, but they were still focused on, well, I gave all of this up for Jesus, so now what can I get? Remember, that was really the question that Peter asked, right? It's like, Lord, we gave up everything. What's in for us now? And we heard Jesus speaking in the language of um, being returned um, hundredfold, everything that they lost. And it's kind of like, if that's what you're thinking, if glory, power, prestige, position is what you are obsessed with and thinking about, that's all you can hear. You can't hear the stuff about the cross. You can't hear about what Jesus has been repeatedly teaching, and that's what's happening. There were these powerful promises that Jesus made, and they were. Powerful promise of eternal life, the leveling effect that has on all of us towards salvation, the, the language of reigning in that kingdom, receiving a hundredfold of everything, and it kind of fed their materialistic kind of sentiment, their desire for more, their desire for position. So when Jesus spoke about suffering, it just went in one ear and came out the other. Now, when Jesus spoke about glory and honor, they received that, and that's what they're stuck with. That's what they're obsessing over, but they can't receive and hear the crux of the suffering that he's been teaching them again and again. And they're still thinking, what's in it for me? They keep asking, what's in it for us? What shall we get out of this? In verse 20, it says, Then the mother of sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him something. Now, here we see a political power play. Um, so we, if you watch any of the political dramas, um, or if you just watch the news, the way people typically operate is if you want something, 
um, you know, it depends on who you know. So make sure you get to befriend someone who has power position so that he or she can pull the strings for you. That's how you get to the top. And here, mother of sons of Zebedee is actually sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. So here, um, James and John bring their mom, sister of Jesus, to basically give them that kind of inner access to gain that leverage. And it's politics at its basics, right? It's like, hey, can you give my sons, uh, since we are related, you know me, I know you, I know your mom, we're good, please place my sons in these places of honor. And Jesus responds to her, what do you want when she comes? And she says, well, what I just said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Give my boys the highest positions that you can think of. She's thinking of greatness in terms of position and office, thinking that rank reflects greater um, importance. If you think about the past four chapters, four or five so chapters, um, you have the disciples who've been hanging out. You have the larger entourage of about 70 disciples who've been following Jesus, listening, seeing, learning. And within, within those 70, you also have a smaller inner circle of 12. You have the 12 disciples. And within the 12 disciples, you have the even more inner circle known as a three, Peter, James, and John. And if you think about the past couple of chapters, whenever somebody came to inquire about Jesus, who do they go to? They went to Peter, not that Peter. Now, they also wanted some influence. It's like, why does Peter always get the you know, exposure. They had ambition too, and exposes that. Even for spiritual things, even when you're doing good things, if we're not careful, our selfish ambition can easily uh, surface. Um, and we're not immune to this problem of pride. We're not immune to this cultural mindset of what it means to move up in that ladder. For those of us who serve in the military, imagine being deployed, but before seeing any real action, you tell your you know, commander or your uh, general that, you know, sir, you know, when the war is over, when we get that you know, ticker tape uh, parade, could I you know, ride with you in that guest of honor car so that people can see? That's pretty ridiculous, right? Before really anything happened. Um, my boys just started the Recreational Basketball League. Yesterday was their second game. They have the Basketball League will continue till end of you know, February, beginning of March. Imagine after a second game, yesterday's game, a you know, couple of good players, um, like one of the or two of the players go up to the coach and say, Coach, you know, I know the season just started, but can you make sure you give me the MVP uh, when the season ends? It's like, 
chill out. We just finished the second game. You have like 12 more games at least to play. And the playoff hasn't, you know, started yet. Just, just relax. It's that kind of ridiculous ask that the disciples are going, really using their mom to get what they want. Um, J.C. Ryle says, we ask that God would make us holy and good, and that is a good request. But indeed, but are we prepared to be sanctified by any process, any process that God in his wisdom may call us to pass through? Are we ready to be purified by affliction, weaned by the world, by bereavement, drawn near to God by losses and sickness and sorrows? Jesus continues to this inquiry by saying, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they, in this kind of false bravado with not really knowing what Jesus is saying, they say, we are able. There's this ambition that they, they have. Um, they want the highest place. Um, and they don't even know what Jesus is truly talking about. When Jesus is talking about the cup, taking the cup, drinking the cup, it refers to an Old Testament um, concept representing the experience of suffering under the hand of God's wrath. And in Psalm 75, it, reads, uh, it tells us uh, about the idea of God as a judge, and, and that, you know, and it reads, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wickedness of the earth must drink Drain and drink down its dregs. So the picture of the cup is a cup of God's wrath, which the wicked must drink and just drink it completely. And that's what Jesus is asking. And it has a kind of a double meaning. It's like, are you able to suffer on my behalf? Are you able to die the death that I'm going to die? They can't. But they think they can. They don't even know what Jesus is truly asking. They just want that position, that spot, that seat to the left, and to the right. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, reads, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What is it that leads us to glory? It's affliction. The greatest, the highest seats are left for those who are afflicted for the gospel for Jesus Christ. And here are these disciples who want the position, don't really quite know how to get there, that unless you take up your cross and follow, there is no glory waiting. And especially here, the eternal weight of glory is, requires suffering for the gospel. Now these two guys are just, uh, they, they, they speak before they think. Sons of Thunder, um, kind of like Peter in some ways. And they have this excessive com confidence. And later on, we know that in Matthew 26, when Jesus is taken prisoner and arrested, the, the very thing that he predicted it about, what happened to the disciples? They fled. They're afraid for their lives. Then they hid away. Jesus continues in verse 23 by saying, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Um, they will drink, but actually not completely. Now, eventually, James 
um, becomes the first martyr, and it shows up in Acts 12. He's the one to die for Jesus as the first martyr. And John becomes the first living martyr. He gets exiled, and he spends the rest of his life in an island of Patmos because of the gospel, because of what he has been teaching and um, teaching and preaching. Now, as the disciple, these two disciples come with Jesus and ask for this, and Jesus responds. Now, in verse 24, we hear that the rest of the ten heard this, and they were really upset. They were indignant. Not because they were doing such a unspiritual thing. Say, like, how could you do such a thing that's so low? No, they're indignant because they were too late, because that's what they wanted. This debate or this kind of just infighting continues, unfortunately. And in verse 25, Jesus calls them all and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Here we see um, how when you look at politics, the way power is exercised, um, people in position lord over those who are not. This kind of a dominant dictatorship. And we've seen this in history um, from the Caesars, the Ptolemies, the Herods, the Pilots, the Hitlers, and whoever you see now who are in power, they lord over those who are not. And that's not what we are called to do. Like, this is not how the kingdom operates. And the second part, the, the great ones exercise authority over them. So if those, the rulers are the ones in position, um, the great ones, um, the great ones who exercise authority over them, they use this kind of a charismatic control. They say things, they use their wit and charm to sway people to their way. And this is what we see all the time too. And this is what Jesus is saying. It is not to be like this. Kingdom of God doesn't operate this way. Don't seek these kind of position or influence. But instead, what does he say in verse 26? It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great. So instead of those kind of greatness, if you want to be great, you must be your servant. We live in a day and age where even within Christianity, there is a Christian personality cult. There's a list that people want to be on, Christian superstar list. Um, Christianity is not immune. In fact, we have drank that Kool-Aid, and it's, we're in a very dangerous place in many ways. Uh, but Jesus tells us this is not the way the kingdom operates. Um, Jesus teaches us that if you want to spend yourself, what we want to do is to spend ourselves for the purpose of the kingdom. And we do this by being a servant. And here, the word servant is actually not doulos, but it's actually diakonos. Um, and I, I guess this is appropriate for those of us who are getting installed today um, and as a church as we come together. Um, here, Jesus is talking about deacons or diakonos who do low menial service. It's the kind of thing that you would ask someone to do, clean up your yard, take out your trash, serve a meal, collect garbage. Menial jobs that don't require a whole lot of skill or education. It's something that 
reflects people of the lower social strata. And this is what Jesus is saying. If you want to be great, you got to be a servant. You have to be a diaconos. Um, Oswald Sander, excuse me, William Law says this, Let every day be a day of humility. Condescend to all the weaknesses and infirmities of your fellow creatures. Cover their frailties. Love their excellencies. Encourage their virtues. Relieve their wants. Rejoice in their prosperity. Compassionate their distress. Receive their friendship. Overlook their unkindness. Forgive their malice. Be a servant of servants. And condescend to do the lowest office of the lowest of mankind. Jesus continues, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave. So Jesus, in, in teaching, talks about deaconing or deacons who serve, but now takes it to another level. You must be your slave. If you want to be the greatest, if you want to be first, protos, right? For first, last, last, first. If you want to be first, you've got to be your slave. A doulos, a bond servant, a bond slave. Got to be committed to serving one another with that kind of radical intensity. One wise man said, The world may assess a man's greatness by the number of people whom he controls and who are at his beck and call or by his intellectual standing or academic eminence, or by the number of committees that which he or she is a member, or by the size of the bank account balance or material possession which he has amassed. But in the assessment of Jesus Christ, these things are irrelevant. And Jesus finishes here by saying, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Even as some of the man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon, he came as a menial servant to serve and to give his life, going back to the previous verses, as a ransom for many. This kind of radical humility that Jesus shows is the way to true kingdom greatness. And Jesus here beautifully sets up this picture of substitution atonement that he died as a ransom for our sin. Jesus is not an example or just an example to be followed. No, Jesus served as the atoning work, um, enabling us, doing what is necessary for us to be forgiven so that we can serve because we can trust in who we are and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and empty tomb. I want to ask us, what sacrifice do you make to serve Christ? What pain have we gone through to serve Christ and the gospel? Steph shared about the challenges and even the reservations that we have in sharing the gospel to those we don't know, especially those closest to us. What sacrifices are we making to serve Christ? Or instead of making sacrifices, are we usually demanding to be served because we think we're in a certain position? Or because we think having a certain position means you get served? 
Are you seeking, are we seeking after that kind of greatness that the world speaks of, or the kind of greatness that Jesus is teaching his disciples? Are we seeking after greatness so that everyone would look at us and admire us, think that we are significant, that we are influential, that we are successful? Or are we kind of, are we seeking that kind of greatness that Jesus is speaking? Greatness that necessitates going through humility because there is no resurrection without the crucifixion. There is no glory without the suffering. <coughs> John Piper speaks of our today's current self-love cult sentiment. He says, today the first and greatest commandment is, thou shalt love yourself. And the explanation for almost every interpersonal problem is thought to lie in someone's low self-esteem. So you have sermons, articles, and books that have been published that pushed this idea into Christian mind. It is a rare congregation, for example, that does not stumble over the theology of Isaac Watts, who wrote, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? So Jesus just gave his third and final teaching prediction about his suffering. He's trying to get through his thick, headed disciples about what true greatness in the kingdom is as they are lobbying for position, thinking about getting that one-manship up position. Jesus, as he's heading to Jerusalem for this Passover meal that's going to lead to his death, he stops. In verse 29, we see Jesus stopping. There is this in the midst of trying to get his disciples to understand this important thing about what it means to live with greatness in the kingdom, he stops and he ministers. Not to anyone in position of power or authority, no mayor, no leader. In fact, he stops to minister to two outcasts. Here in verse 29, it says, and as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed. Remember, the, the entourage, like people are still heading to Jerusalem, right? For the Passover meal, um, the feast. And you have the disciples and the masses who are heading that way. And here again, behold, pay attention here. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus, as we've seen throughout the gospel, he's always moved with compassion when he sees the masses who are suffering, and he sees, he's moved with compassion when he sees two men, two blind men. The, the disciples, as well as the masses, they love being with Jesus, but they can't experience the compassion that Jesus has toward these people. In fact, they're irritated and they're distracted but no sympathy, no compassion. And these two blind beggars, um, they, they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Blindness was pretty common back in those days. You could become blind through many ways, just 
um, lack of proper medical care, unsanitary conditions, um, sunlight sometimes caused blindness back in those days, blowing sand, any kind of accident, war could affect um, people fighting and any of those things. But probably the most common way that people um, received or picked up blindness was through gonorrheal uh, diplococcus, which as a baby is born would pick up from the mother coming out of the womb. And back in those days, because they didn't have the necessary medicine, the child would be born and eventually become permanently blind throughout his life. And it's these kind of people probably who, although we don't know how they became blind, who cried out for mercy. And the, and the masses, the crowd rebuked them. It's like, be quiet. Reminiscent of the disciples or, you know, whenever the, the crowd wanted something like that. Um, but they cried all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They recognized Jesus, the Messiah, and they knew that he was the only one who could save them, heal them. And there's one thing, you know, I think that, well, there are many things that we can learn from this uh, story, but for today, as we think about these blind men's encounter with Jesus as after all these teachings and encounter, um, I think it provides us with an, a mirror for us, for you and me, When was the last time we cried out to the Lord? Because we all need the Lord. Question is, I don't don't think many of us, if not a lot of us at times, recognize that we really have that desperate need of Jesus. Most of us, for the most part, we are okay. I mean, we have basic needs met. We're not blind. We have food. Some of us might be going through some financial difficulties, marriage challenges, children issues, to name just a few things. But most of us, we, might, we, we perhaps don't have that kind of urgency crying out, Lord, save us. These blind men, they, they couldn't do anything. They have to have someone else bring them to the city gates to beg. They couldn't hold a job. They had to beg. They couldn't provide for their family. And what Jesus provided in healing changed everything. You might think, I think Christmas, New Year is a stressful time. Um, I know that there's a high level of depression during holiday season. There's far more um, financial burden. People, um, I know that theft also increases during this season because of different effects and pressures. But um, maybe you're crying out, Lord, save me, my marriage is falling apart. Marriage is important, but that's not the one thing. Or maybe you're having children, um, challenges with your kids. Uh, Lord, my kids, I can't handle them. They drive me crazy. And raising kids in a godly way is an important thing, whether they're little or grown up. Or maybe you're crying out, Lord, I'm in debt. Help me. I need like $50,000, $100,000, $25,000 to get these creditors off my back. Your financial issue is an important thing. But actually, that's not the one thing. Those are all important things. 
But even if you get those things resolved, it's not going to be sufficient for what is truly needed here. The most important thing is our need for that relationship with God to know the God of the Bible who is just, to know and have a relationship with the God of the Bible who is just, gracious, and sovereign, but is good, who revealed himself fully in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's who we need. That's what we need. Everything else is just a symptom of what's going to arrive because that foundational one thing is not addressed. When was the last time we cried out to the Lord, Lord, have mercy on me? You know, Jesus is waiting for us. Yes, as we approach Christmas in a manger as a newborn babe coming humbly, but also on the cross, an empty tomb. And he asks us, what do you want for me to do for you? What is that one thing? What do you want me to do? For the blind people, clearly that's pretty simple. What is that one thing? You know, the issue for us is a moral issue, our sin issue. We stand or we sit before a just God who gives what is right, but it's also gracious and compassionate as we saw in the parable of the workers, but God who is also sovereign. He's in control. He's in charge. He calls the shots. But this God is also good. As we usher into the season of Advent, as you look at the lights, remember why he came. Remember his words. I didn't come to be served. I didn't come to be deaconed by anyone. Although all the rulers operate in such a way. That is not the way the kingdom of God operates. I came here to deacon, to serve. Brothers and sisters, um, deacon elects, as we continue during this season of Advent, as we look at the lights, may we remember Jesus Christ, why he came. And I want to invite you to cry out. What would it take for us to cry out? Would we want to, would we be open to go through any kind of suffering? My sinful heart probably says no, but that just reveals the distance that I got to go in that process of sanctification. As we journey together during this season of Advent, may we humble ourselves and continue to grow in understanding what true greatness in the kingdom means. Show me as we pray.